making contact, making making, making, making contact. I'm Laura Flynn, and you're listening to Making Contact. When you cross the mountains of the moon into our country, Mr. Tyrone, you will be stepping back 2,000 years. Oh, I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Hollywood has a long history of whitewashing and stereotyping different groups, from brownface to blackface and yellowface. For Arabs and Muslims, persistent cliches throughout Hollywood's history range from desert scenes with camels and palm trees and characters cast as either barbaric villains, belly dancers, or terrorists, among others. I, we are all prepared to die. With one turn of that key, two million of your people will die instantly. More than 300 films typecast Arabs and Muslims in a negative light, according to Dr. Jack Shaheen. He's a media critic who studies images of Arabs and Muslims in American popular culture. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll meet people confronting racist depictions of Muslims and Arabs in pop culture and politics, and two young women evaluating societal expectations placed on them. First, do you remember that Busta Rhymes song, Arab Money? Well, MC Young Falafels has a comeback for Busta, and the media's continued misrepresentation of the Middle East. Young Falafel, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm here to educate y'all xenophobes on this thing called Arab Money. Let's get straight to it. La hila, blah, blah. This ain't even Arabia. It ain't Arab Money. It's called Arab money. Stop saying my people drive made box and shoot guns and play with rocks. We ain't getting Arab money. We trying to save our identity. Now there ain't no way you can take my name. Wish I had that oil well money, but instead I live in a place with shows like Fargo, Tyrant, Homeland, making money off my race. Living in a country who won't let my people in and telling them to smell the falafel when these Syrian refugees can't eat ish. Hashtaki haki fadi, basakhalas with the hashishi. It ain't a rap money. It's called Arab money. You're making a commodity off of me. Casting Indians and saying that I'd be. It ain't Arab money. It's called Arab money. My family had to flee the country. No seven star hotels, just Aladdin lying to me. Never seen a magic carpet, a camel, or a genie, but I've seen some bombings and killings. I guess that's Arab money now. Women trying to take care of their family. Praying to Allah, free Palestine, Syria, Beirut, Iraq. Yemen, the list goes on. Bombs dropping us, killing us one by one. My Arab money runs deep, like the field of cotton and missed opportunities. It ain't Arab money. It's called Arab money. I'm sick of the media misrepresenting me. Homeland is racist, just check the graffiti. It ain't Arab money. It's called Arab money. See now, you can never take trips to Baghdad, dummy. You can never count Arab money. More like dead bodies, mummy. But we can't talk about that. No, we can never say it was the Bush men and the US. So instead, we make movies about me, saying I'm the dangerous one. And remember, this ain't the land of the free, but I guess that's Arab money. 
Let's shut up, Akimai. I'm not a terrorist, I just wanna get free. It ain't a rap money, it's called Arab money. No more misrepresenting me. I'm here to send peace back to the Middle East. That's not a rap money, it's called Arab money. What? Run falafel out. That piece was produced by Diana Kalaji. In this next piece, Kalaji tackles an issue within the Muslim American community that is rarely discussed. Many young women make a commitment to wearing the hijab, the headscarf. However, some take off the hijab and are ostracized from their Muslim communities, whereas before, they were ostracized from their American communities. Kalaji brings us this next story about two women who've taken off the hijab but still remain close to their faith. Power, security, safety, shame, stranger, different. This isn't necessarily something that I like to talk about, so I would prefer it to be anonymous. Um, and I want this to be more, I want this to be shed more light on the experience as opposed to me as a person. My name is Sabrina and I'm a sophomore at USF. I grew up in a household where my mom was Christian and my dad is Muslim. I grew up mostly in America. I was born and raised here. And we grew up in a very, very conservative town in a conservative city. So we had to really conceal the fact that we were Muslim. They never really forced either religion upon us. After I learned more about Islam, I, I really felt like without anyone having to tell me that I'm Muslim, that I want to be Muslim and I want to practice this religion. But um, growing up, Islam was enforced upon us. It was more of like, no questions asked. You read the Quran, you pray five times a day, you um, adhere to the rules of Islam, you know. Um, but anytime you asked a question, it was more of like, why are you asking this? Um, are you do you not believe in it and so it was it was really hard to like get any questions answered and it kind of really pushed me away from Islam so I didn't I wasn't very practicing back then and I didn't want to be Muslim so hijab is a physical covering um, that women wear um, and it covers your hair and de depending on the woman she can decide to cover her body to the extent that she chooses I wanted to wear it for a really long time before I actually started wearing it. And at first I wasn't treated differently, so I felt really good about wearing it. And um, I wasn't really like restricted in my fashion. And um, so that didn't really take a toll on me until college because I went to an all girls private high school. But when I got to college, I noticed, and I was exposed to like a different environment, I noticed that people acted kind of weird when I first met them, especially guys, because when I took off my hijab, all of a sudden, the guys that I already like met while I was wearing hijab started acting so weird. And most of my guy friends um, are Muslim. So I feel like they had more respect for me when I wore hijab. And when I took it off, it was kind of like, all of a sudden they thought that they were entitled to 
say certain things to me and treat me a certain way. When I had put it on, I had lost almost all of my supporters, um, and they were Muslim and non-Muslim. And so I was very alone. Um, it was interesting because I had expected a little bit of like my non-Muslim friends to, to leave and to kind of disassociate themselves with me. Um, it hurt a lot, but you know, it happens. But what hurt the most was that I lost a lot of my Muslim friends. I took it off my freshman year, first semester freshman year of college. Um, and I was actually walking outside of the campus. But then as soon as I started getting into the work field, it started affecting like my sales. Um, it, it was affecting the way uh, customers would come in. People would avoid me. Uh, people never wanted to talk to me. Um, people would give me stares. This, it was on 9-11, and this guy was like speeding in his car, and I had the right of the way as a pedestrian, and I was in the middle of the crosswalk, and he didn't even stop. And I had to like run to the other side, and he almost hit me. And when I got to the sidewalk, I just like stopped for a second, and he stopped next to the sidewalk, and he pulled up, and he rolled down his window, and like basically cussed me out and called me a terrorist um and he spit and stuff and after that i just i did not feel safe wearing hijab that day i went to work and i didn't wear the scarf and it wasn't a plan to take it off completely i just wanted to see what the experience was from then and um i went to work and it was interesting like my sales were super high i wore it for like a week and I just, even though like nothing changed besides that and I was like in the same place, I was always like so paranoid and so like on alert and I just didn't want to live that way and I didn't want like something happening to me because of that. And honestly, at first I felt guilty, but I feel like people don't realize that if you're in that kind of situation, it's okay to uncover. I didn't know how to react to that. And um, I could have gone on with my life um, just saying, like, that's just the way the world is. Um, that's just how it is. And um, and I could have still worn the scarf, but I wasn't expecting that to happen. And so it took a lot bigger of a toll on me than I had imagined it would. And so my reaction was... Um, was to not wear it anymore and to work on myself and to make myself stronger to be able to take on that take on that role of wearing the scarf the scarf is um is very powerful and i commend every woman who wears it and um and it is really hard and I just want to work on myself to be able to get to the position that many women are in now to be able to wear it. Um, but that doesn't put any shame to people who don't wear it. Um, everyone has their own connection. Everyone has their own struggles. Um, just because I want to eventually put it back on does not mean not wearing it is a bad thing at all like you could be a much better muslim in any way shape or form um than any than some women 
who wear the hijab and um my experience is not to diminish any anyone of whatever choice they decide to make i felt sad that i had to take it off in that way like i didn't want i I felt like i was being forced to take it off like i didn't have any other choice but to take it off or like or die basically um and i didn't like that my choice was being taken away from me so it made me really really sad um but after like getting over that it i was happy because i was able to open my eyes to this problem in our community and i never realized like what other girls go through like when i wore hijab and someone told me like they took it off and they said this and that i was like okay well why like i love hijab so much like why would you do that and i never understood and i was really ignorant and um i would always kind of judge them and be be mean about it like in my head um but after i took it off like i realized like this is like a thing like people actually suffer from like following their religion and doing these things for god like and i think that you have to really remember that in our religion intentions are everything like it's not just what you see on the surface and it really showed me that i can be a good muslim and i don't have to do uh wear hijab to do so power security safety shame stranger different my name is Diana Kalaji. I'm currently a junior at the University of San Francisco, and I'm double majoring in performing arts and social justice and media studies. And I identify myself as an Arab American Muslim woman of color. I just wanted to show how multifaceted individuals are, especially those who are underneath this microscope and are perceived to be seen as um, victims or being oppressed by the patriarchy or things like that. Whereas it's more complex than that. And there are stories that need to be talked about, not even just within the American community, but within the Muslim American community. So that is what really um, inspired me to do these pieces because there are issues that I wasn't too familiar with that I wanted to learn more about and hear these narratives and just create something that could tell this story. I believe that more work needs to be made by those who experience the stories and that everyone has a narrative that deserves to be heard on a bigger platform and I hope to see these changes emerge um, through podcasts, film, music, and television in the future so that we can really break that glass ceiling. Diana Kalaji's pieces were made possible with the support of Professor Beth Hoffman and the Media Studies Department at the University of San Francisco. After the break, we'll have a conversation with Mustafa Bayoumi, the author of This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. He writes, every group has its loonies, and yet the idea that American Muslim communities are foul nests of hatred, where dark-skinned men plot Arabic violence while combing one another's beards persists. 
In fact, it's worse than that. In the past few years, another narrative about American Muslims has come along, which sows a different kind of paranoia. We'll be right back. For more information about this or past shows, or to make a difference by supporting our work, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Welcome back to Making Contact. Our guest, Mustafa Bayoumi, is the author of This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. His new book provides a glimpse into what it's like to be Muslim American today. From politics to popular culture, Bayoumi explores how Muslim and Arab identity have been reduced to terrorist or terrorist sympathizer. Gripped by fear and paranoia, he argues the rise of surveillance of ordinary Muslim American life threatens all of our civil liberties. Thanks for joining us, Mustafa. Thank you for having me. You open your book with a story about the NYPD working with the CIA to develop a massive covert surveillance program directly targeting the entire Muslim community in New York City. Can you tell us about the program and how some thought you were among the top persons of interest? Well, in um, August of 2011, the Associated Press began releasing a series of reports that they had uh, about this program. The program itself was one that was based essentially just on patrolling the sort of everyday uh, qualities of Muslim American life in the New York City area, and in fact also beyond. The, the police department was traveling even as far as New Jersey and, and, and Connecticut um, on these kinds of reconnaissance missions. None of these uh, uh, investigations were driven by probable cause or by you know suspicion of an individual's actions. But in fact, it seems from these documents that they were driven primarily just because people themselves were Muslim. You spoke to a young Egyptian-American who was, uh, I believe, the one who was actually among the top 42 persons of interest, and he shared with you what it was like for the NYPD to view him as a threat. Can you describe like, you know, what, what it was like for him to be um, under, under such tight surveillance? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, several years ago, I also I had another, my first book is called How Does It Feel to Be a Problem, Being Young and Arab in America? And uh, that book was uh, required me to hang out a lot and 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 spend a lot of time with, uh, especially Brooklyn's young Muslim American and Arab Americans. And uh, one of the people who's very popular among young devout Muslims in Brooklyn is a man by the name of Muhammad Ashinawi. In fact, many years ago, he was even a student of mine. I respect Muhammad a great deal. He's a very intelligent man. He's a a, a very uh, believing man. He's a devout man, and um, he has, as I say, he has a lot of popularity among young young uh, Muslims, uh, both in the New York City area, and actually he's a growing reputation nationwide as well. And then at the same time, we find out that Muhammad is uh, one of the people of, in the secret, secretly released documents, that Muhammad is actually really one of the people who the police are spending a great deal of attention directly on. 
And, uh, and so the documents that have been revealed about the surveillance that was attached to Muhammad himself are quite uh, disturbing. Uh, he's asked specific kinds of questions at border control that are laid, relayed in the documents. He's, they note the length of his beard. They even get, they even get uh, details about his beard wrong in the details, as he's told me. Um, and they also follow him around things like uh, in the city, like very closely. And so at one point, they, they, the documents also indicate that they were following him as he was going shopping for a, an engagement ring with his fiancée. Uh, and I asked him about that detail. And he said, yes, he knew he was being watched or he suspected it anyways. And then his comment was, what are you supposed to do? Call the cops on the cops? Uh, so for him, it was deeply distressing, I, th I think. And they, they sued the government, actually. Mohammed said that, his, his, uh, uh, that the, this surveillance was actually having a big impact on his life and was, uh, was um, uh, injurious to his uh, professional career. You know, people no longer, once it became clear that he was being spied on, or even when there were suspicions that he would be spied on, people would, would shy away from him, he would say, and these sorts of things. He could not, he could not himself... Uh, offer commentary um, on many different topics. He shied away from talking about politics in his own um, sermons and these sorts of things. So his First Amendment rights and his First Amendment liberties are, are being curtailed there. You know, on m multiple grounds, he could show injury. Um, and then actually, when I was finishing my book, This Muslim American Life, that lawsuit was still pending. Um, but more recently, and since the beginning of the year, uh, the city and the uh, plaintiffs have actually been in conversation about finding a, a settlement for that lawsuit. Between the, the two books that you've written, um, what is it like, or what did you find that was common among people that you talked to about what it's like to be Muslim American today? So I think in particular for younger people, it's it's been now almost 15 years since uh, the terrorist attacks of 2001. And so for a lot of younger people, that's pretty much the only reality they know. And this reality is one that in some ways is getting a little bit grimmer and a little bit darker. Uh, um, so I think, I think this is something we should actually all be paying a lot of attention to. You also write about Orientalism and compare it to how Muslims and Arabs are viewed in the U.S. today. Can you break down this concept for us? So in... Um, uh, in 1978, there was a, a book published, Edward Said, who was a professor at Columbia University. In fact, he was, uh, I was fortunate enough to have worked with him. He was my professor at Columbia when I was a graduate student. He passed away in 2003. But in, um, in 1978, he, he had written a book that came out called Orientalism, which is itself, you know, uh, just using a, a title, so, sort of like a job title. In fact, there are people, there still are people in, around the country, and especially they use the term more freely in Europe, who are Orientalists. And an Orientalist is in, um, in the, you know, especially in the European context, the Orient that they're talking about when they say Orientalists is really the, the biblical lens. It's like the Middle East, the, the close Middle East, and maybe it goes down so far as... as uh, into Asia and then into um, 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 India, etc. And what he found was that, you know, when Westerners study the Middle East, they, they do it from a position really of what he calls superiority, positional superiority, from a position of superiority, from, from a very kind of prejudicial point of view. They're always seeing the, the East as somehow lesser than the West. It becomes a way of defining your own self. So the, the East becomes a, a lesser point that, that makes you feel much better about your, your worlds. 
And not only that, but it, the, for Said, what was important was not just the elaboration of these kinds of stereotypes of the East by people who studied the West, but, but also the way that these stereotypes and the study of the East by the West enabled conquest as well, physical conquest of those parts of the world. So Said is really connecting how colonialism, colonization, and scholarship actually really operated hand in hand um, in the European tradition. And then there's this part in the book where you say, this idea that you are not seen as a complex human being, but only a purveyor of possible future violence, illustrates the extraordinary predicament of the heart of contemporary Muslim American life. Um, how do you want to challenge conventional thinking about Muslims and Arabs in the West? Well, unfortunately, the conventional thinking has now become this idea that that every Muslim is, if not now, a, a, a potential terrorist sometime in the future is going to be connected to terrorism. I think we need to really just sever that that relationship of Muslim and terrorist. And, and in fact, it's not just out of you know being polite or being politically correct or any of those kinds of notions. It's, it's also statistically just completely true. In the United States, the levels of, of, of violence performed in the name of Islam or being Muslim are actually, if you actually look at the numbers, they're, they're tiny. They're tiny. Uh, the levels of violence that, are, that we see performed by right-wing militia groups are multiple-fold um, uh, compared to what it is for, uh, uh, for Muslim Americans. In fact, if you take all of the deaths by Muslim Americans in one, within these past 15 years, that is since the 9-11 attacks, not including those, but since the 9-11 attacks until today, they generally add up to at least one, to about one year's worth of school shootings in the United States. Right? I'm not even talking about the right-wing violence, which is actually on a, on a whole other, on the right-wing militia violence, which is actually even on a whole other plane. But those things don't get covered to the same, nearly to the same degree. So I, don't, I completely understand why people don't, under, don't make those associations. But if you actually look at the statistics, that's what the statistics will tell you. So I think that it's really, there's, there are so many reasons why we need to sever why we really need to sever this relationship, this, this, this association that one hears so clearly between Muslim and terrorist, because it's not even true. And Muslim Americans are deserving of as much humanity and as much complexity in how they are viewed as any other group. What do you think are ways that people can challenge hate and hate speech and Islamophobia today and racism? Well, I think we see it everywhere around us, unfortunately. Um, you know, I mean, we hear it in the political rhetoric. I think we're going to probably hear more of it, if not a lot more of it, as the uh, election season continues. I think people should not put up with it. They should understand that this is divisive, hateful, uh, it, and it harms not just the Muslim community, it harms the fabric of American, uh, the American political society, really the, the, the foundation of American democracy, to be able to just exclude populations like this wholesale. I think people really should be able to articulate that message powerfully and as powerfully as they can to one another. We need, we need to be able to call out that kind of rhetoric whenever we hear it. But I think we also should be making the kinds of connections that understand that, you know, the ways in which that rhetoric or these actions by the state are also connected to, uh, this, you know, various other movements for civil rights, like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, 
or um, uh, also to other immigrant groups like Mexican Americans or LGBT Americans. I think we also should be making those connections across the uh, across the spectrum, so that we, we, you know, there's there's a lot more to be gained when we understand how much we have in common and what kind of society we're building in the future with the true kind of respect and justice that we would have for each other and for everyone. That is Mustafa Bayoumi, the author most recently of This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. He's also the author of How Does It Feel to Be a Problem, Being Young and Arab in America, which won an American Book Award and the Arab American Book Award for nonfiction. He's a professor of English at Brooklyn College, City College of New York. Thanks again for joining us, Mustafa. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Do you have a story to share? Send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For more information about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Jasmine Lopez, Monica Lopez, and Marie Cha. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.